Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello and welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This week, we are talking about a topic that I thought I was prepared to talk about. And actually, this has been a really difficult week for me. Um, Things have come up in my research that have touched on unhealed places in my childhood past. And my relationships with certain family members. And so I'm going to try not to tear up as I'm talking today. But this is important because this is another kind of narcissism that's very present in high demand religion. And my guess is that you have run into these narcissistic traits. Today, we're going to be talking about vulnerable narcissism. And vulnerable narcissism shows up as either the victim or the martyr, or sometimes a mixture of both. Now, traditionally, this kind of narcissism has been called covert narcissism, but it's now usually called vulnerable narcissism, but it's sometimes called sensitive or shy narcissism. And the reason for this is because the terms overt and covert have actually come to mean whether the behavior is outward, like it's words, it's behavior that we can observe. Those are overt narcissistic behaviors, whereas covert narcissism are like the thoughts and the beliefs that happen inside of the person, things that we can guess at because of the overt behavior, but we're not exactly privy to because it's inside of them. We can guess at it, but we can never be 100% certain what those beliefs are. We have to use kind of our deductive reasoning skills. All narcissists have overt traits as well as covert traits of narcissism. There are things that they believe or that they think that will come out in their words and their behavior. Like all of the subsets of narcissism we've been talking about, vulnerable narcissists have all of the same traits that all the other kinds of narcissists possess. And just a reminder, those are self-centeredness, a sense of entitlement, arrogant thinking and behavior, a lack of empathy and consideration for other people, and an excessive need for validation and admiration. However, vulnerable narcissists are usually introverted. They feel hopelessly inadequate and fragile and present as someone who is desperately dependent on others. They often can't handle the slightest criticism or even an implied criticism. And when I say implied criticism, I mean like 
even if your face doesn't look as accepting as they think it should or as grateful as they think it should, even if you don't say words at all, sometimes they can be very fragile to facial expressions or to body language. Even if you're not trying to send a message with your facial expressions or your body language, they might get upset if you have like a really deep thinking face or if you just have kind of a flat affect or kind of a frown on your face. They can sometimes take that personally as if you are saying that you're not pleased with them or you're criticizing them when in actuality you are just deep in thought. They tend to overthink their actions, they ruminate on the past and hug tightly to the negative side of their past. They're often anxious, and they worry excessively about what other people think of them. They're also often depressed and can be more likely to engage in self-harm. They withdraw to escape feelings of shame, pain, envy, which is why they're labeled vulnerable. So this will get a little bit confusing because vulnerability for me in my regular work is synonymous with courage. It's the ability to take off our armor and our protective mechanisms in order to be fully seen, heard, and understood. The way we're using vulnerability in today's episode, however, is a sense of fragility, a sense of withdrawal, a sense of inability to handle some of the more difficult feelings. And so this vulnerable narcissism is a protective mechanism to cover this deep sense of inadequacy or this deep sense of not enoughness, this deep sense that they'll be abandoned or rejected. Now, on the spectrum of narcissism, grandiose narcissism would represent one side of the spectrum, and grandiose narcissism is what we usually think of as a narcissist. They're loud, they're arrogant, obnoxious, uh, self-promoting, think they're better than everyone else. And then on the other side of the spectrum would be vulnerable narcissism. So these two are usually presented as polar opposites, grandiose being on one side of the spectrum, vulnerable narcissism being on the other. However, there are several different shades of what that looks like in between. So you might see someone with traits that tend more towards the grandiose side of the spectrum or traits that tend more towards the vulnerable side of the spectrum. And in some cases, you may see people that kind of swing between both sides, sometimes acting more grandiose and sometimes acting more vulnerable. The other thing I want to say is all of the subsets of narcissism can present in grandiose ways or in vulnerable ways. So in the past couple of episodes, we've talked about self-righteous narcissism and communal narcissism. A self-righteous narcissist can be more of a grandiose self-righteous narcissist that loudly proclaims how much more righteous they are than other people, how much holier they are than others, how morally superior they are to other people, and may ask for special privileges because of their self-righteous status. Or you might have more of a self-deprecating, shy, depressed, introverted kind of self-righteous narcissist. They might be more of a quiet, 
self-righteous narcissist. So self-righteous narcissism can be anywhere on that spectrum between grandiosity and vulnerability. The same is true of communal narcissism. We're actually going to talk about a specific kind of communal narcissist today that is more vulnerable. When we talked about communal narcissism before, we kind of talked about both kinds, but you can be a grandiose communal narcissist that loves the spotlight, is very charming and charismatic and draws people to them, is very glamorous, but also comes across as a saint, but behind closed doors can be very um, insulting and critical of other people. But there's a special kind of communal narcissist that is vulnerable that comes off more as a martyr. And we're going to be talking about that today. So that vulnerable narcissism mixed with the communal narcissism can give you this very martyr feeling to the narcissism. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in some of the relationships we may have had. Now, all narcissists engage in narcissistic beliefs and behaviors as a way to preserve their self-esteem. Grandiose narcissists do this by promoting themselves, seeking praise, and insulting others. But vulnerable narcissists do this by withdrawing to avoid shame, pain, or envy, while also allowing themselves to fantasize about being superior to others. So they might withdraw from the spotlight to avoid those difficult emotions, but secretly believe that they're better than others for doing it that way. The biggest difference between grandiose narcissism and vulnerable narcissism is that one is confident in maintaining their self-image and the other is insecure about doing the same. And while vulnerable narcissists have a great fear of being alone, grandiose narcissists typically have a greater need for admiration. So one side is drawn towards needing more of the admiration and the spotlight and needing it to be very publicly all about them, and that feeds their sense of, like, self. The other one needs pity and sympathy and is worried about losing connections to other people because those connections to other people, the empathy, the sympathy, the pity that they get from other people is what their supply looks like. So supply for a grandiose narcissist is going to come more in the form of praise and even like envy, whereas the supply for the vulnerable narcissist comes more in the form of pity or sympathy. And a lot more codependency and typically what we've talked about with codependent relationships From what I can gather, and I could be wrong, like I said, I'm still a little bit in the middle of this as I'm having new understanding about some close relationships of mine and some things that have been confusing from my childhood and my past. um, I've had some new understanding as I've researched this, but a lot of us who had codependent relationships may have had a vulnerable narcissist that we were codependent with. And as I'm talking about some of these things today, just know you might be triggered 
like I was because you might realize you were manipulated and controlled and that your empathy, your compassion, those things were taken advantage of. And it's really, it's a difficult realization. So this really is a tender podcast. And I may come back and visit this again once I've worked through some of these things, but I promised you a podcast on this. And I think what we have here today is going to at least help us have an awareness of what we're dealing with so that we feel less guilty about setting boundaries with certain people in our lives. If you have a vulnerable narcissist in your life, there is likely a lot of guilt for having just a sense of self at all, for having your own dreams and aspirations, for setting boundaries, even for moving away from home, for marrying somebody that you know takes up any of your time and attention, or having children of your own that take up your time and attention. Yeah, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But if this sounds like you, hang on. We're going to talk about how this shows up as best as I possibly can. And we will revisit it maybe here in six months or a year. And I'll tell you what I've learned at that point. But I didn't realize so much was going to come up today. So bear with me and let's go on this journey together. Now, before we continue, I really do have a sincere request of you. Many of you have said that this podcast has helped you feel more understood and less alone. Some of you have said it's made all the difference in allowing yourself to heal. A few of you have said that you feel more at peace now than you've ever felt before because of what this podcast offers. And one recent listener said that what they've learned here has literally saved their lives. I began this podcast because when I first began deconstructing, I felt so alone and lost and scared. There were a handful of resources that helped me feel less afraid about questioning the religious indoctrination, but there was nothing to help me figure out how to trust myself again, process the sense of betrayal I felt, and rebuild a life that felt good to me. However, because of my schooling in psychology, my years in therapy, and my husband's career as a therapist that we talked about over the dinner table all the time, I had resources I could draw from to help me along this journey, and I wanted to share those resources with others. If this podcast has been a support like that for you, please share an episode with someone else who's on their deconstruction journey. My vision is and has always been to make sure that no one going through religious transition and healing from religious trauma ever has to figure this out on their own, no matter where in the world they live or how much access they have to in-person therapy. And if you share this vision, please go to emancipateyourmind.org and sign up to donate 5 to $10 a month or more if you can to support this work. Any money you donate to the podcast is tax deductible in the United States through the Mormon Discussions nonprofit organization. But more importantly, your donation allows me to set aside the time to research, 
and broadcast and keep this podcast going so it's available for the hundreds of thousands of people currently deconstructing and the ones who will deconstruct in the future. Together, you and I, we can create a safe healing space for all of us that are healing together. And I know that one of those things that so many of us are healing from right now is this narcissistic abuse that often happens in conjunction with religious trauma. Today, as we talk about vulnerable narcissism, I'm going to be looking at this through a parent or grandparent lens because of what came up for me. And it's not because that's the only place that vulnerable narcissism shows up, but that is where the majority of the research is. And it's also what resonated the most with me personally. Like I said, once I've worked through some of the things that came up for me over the past couple of weeks, I will come back and we'll talk maybe more generally or more specifically depending on the questions that you ask and the discussions I get in my DMs. But today we're going to start with an article by Morgan Sullivan from February 2022. In fact, most of the resources on this topic have come from the past five years. So this is all really recent data coming from therapists, doctors, and researchers. This article was called Signs You May Be in a Relationship with a Vulnerable Narcissist, and it was on the website wellandgood.com. So here are some signs that you might have a vulnerable narcissist in your life. One of them is trauma dumping. A vulnerable narcissist love bombing method is trauma dumping. What it is, is they tell you these sad, traumatic stories about how unfair their life is, or how much they're sacrificing, or how stuck they feel, or how many trials and tribulations God or life has given them. And what it does is it elicits the social connection and bonding response that's natural to socially healthy humans. It also elicits this response in those of us who were raised to be codependent and or raised to be super empathic in order to meet the needs of our caregivers and to get our needs met in return. Now, one of the ways you might know that this is love bombing or trauma bonding is that they will share these things with you before you've really built a trusting relationship. So they'll be sharing really sad or traumatic things with you when you barely know them or they're just an acquaintance. It'll sound like life has dealt them a uniquely unfair hand. And this kind of love bombing is especially to those of us who are raised to be codependent because it will feel like home. Like, literally. It'll feel like our childhood home. It also appeals to empaths who feel others' emotions deeply and want to create safety for others. However, vulnerable narcissists often have a problem for every solution. And no matter how much you help them get a leg up in life, 
Problems will arise, opportunities will fail, and eventually they'll blame it all on you. So what's going to happen is they'll tell you all the sad things that have happened in their life. You will listen empathically. You'll validate them. You'll build them up with your words. Eventually, you may even feel like you need to offer them more material help like a job opportunity, or you might give them money, or you might give them a place to live. But no matter how much you give them, always there is a problem for every solution. And the help that you give them always ends up being inadequate. And you really know that you're dealing with a vulnerable narcissist when not only does it end up being inadequate, but then they turn and they criticize you for not doing enough or they blame their failure on you. So that is one way to identify that you're in a relationship with a vulnerable narcissist. I find that the love bombing part, if you were raised with a vulnerable narcissist, might not resonate as much with you because they didn't need to love bomb you. You were raised in their household. But when you encounter vulnerable narcissists out in the wild, it will sound like this. The second clue that you might be dealing with a vulnerable narcissist is they often have contemptuous social anxiety. We are not talking about general social anxiety here. That is a completely different thing. However, a vulnerable narcissist will show signs of social anxiety, but paired with harshly criticizing others who are confident in social situations to cover up for their social discomfort. So general social anxiety might just look like not really enjoying large crowds or feeling uncomfortable or insecure. That's completely different than what that is when it's paired with harshly criticizing others who are comfortable in their skin in social situations. Vulnerable narcissists might even resort to calling those that dress, speak, sing, work, or even converse confidently narcissists. So they might look at someone who is showing up for work, uh, leading a team, singing or speaking in front of a crowd. They might look at those people and harshly criticize them and call them narcissists or self-absorbed. And maybe even like claim social superiority over these people because they would never demand attention in those ways. So they'll criticize those people who are socially confident and then claim superiority because they don't need all of that attention. But in the process, they're like calling attention to how superior they are. So it's like a quiet grandiosity. So At church, I was trying to think about what this would look like, and I often heard this kind of contemptuous social anxiety from women who dressed incredibly plain and seemed like they wanted to like disappear into the wallpaper, harshly criticizing a woman wearing high heels or dangly earrings. Or even like a quirky but confident dress, like a super modest but like brightly colored or quirky dress. I even heard sometimes people who maybe had less social skills criticizing like new people who would come into our congregation and easily make friends. 
and talk about how they were absorbing everyone's attention or taking too much of the social collateral for themselves. And I even heard people harshly criticize someone who would stand up and play the violin or sing a solo or even conduct the choir for crying out loud as being too ostentatious or greedy for attention by standing up and sharing musical talents in our congregation. And I think what really can help you pinpoint the vulnerable narcissism is not only are they kind of withdrawn socially themselves, they're going to voice these judgmental things about other people being too ostentatious or too greedy for attention, while also building themselves up as superior for not needing those things. But then you're also going to notice this sort of like underlying envy that the vulnerable narcissist wishes that they were more like these people. So every time that envy comes up, the judgment is going to come out on these people and then they're going to almost like remind themselves, actually, I'm superior because I'm not like that. And really the reason they're doing that is because underlying, they do wish they were more like that. They may even have fantasies of being these kinds of people. A third hint that you might be dealing with a vulnerable narcissist is you feel a need to rescue them. So in these situations, it feels like you carry the emotional weight of the person's problems. That person doesn't have a job, but you somehow feel responsible for getting them a job. They've been kicked out of their last three apartments, but you somehow feel responsible for helping them get situated in an apartment. They're living in their car. They had their child taken away from them. Their kids won't talk to them. Nobody will be their friend. Everybody hates them. And you feel like you're supposed to fix this problem. Again, this is highly seductive to those of us who were raised in codependent households when we haven't started our healing journey. When codependency still feels like home, feeling a need to rescue people comes really naturally. And even after you've done quite a bit of healing, some of these urges and tendencies will still come up until we get really good at recognizing them and being like, okay, taking the time to get curious and check in with ourselves, like, is this within my personal boundary or not? If you were raised to believe your worth wasn't caring for others' emotions and fixing things for them, you might actually see a vulnerable narcissist as a diamond in the rough that just needs a little shining or a project that needs a little tender loving care. However, no matter how much time, energy, and help you pour into a vulnerable narcissist, it never feels like it's enough. They may praise you and tell you how wonderful you are while you're helping them. They may tell you that nobody else understands them the way you do, or how they can't live without you, or what would they do without you, or that you are their saving grace. All of this feels amazing to someone who was raised to get their validation and their self-worth from helping other people and being useful to other people and fixing other people's problems. 
if you were raised in a codependent relationship, they are offering you your own personalized brand of drug. They are saying, here is that validation you need. Look what a good fixer you are. Look what a good enabler you are. Let me tell you how wonderful you are because you're emotionally caring for me. You're fixing my problems. You're caretaking me. And so I'm going to massage your ego. That's what codependency is all about. It is an addictive relationship. And so they will give you that drug. But then it won't be long before they turn on you and they start criticizing you for not helping them well enough or long enough or quickly enough at other times. So they'll give you breadcrumbs of admiration mixed with criticism, and it can feel really confusing. And over time, it will deeply lessen your sense of self-confidence. You may find yourself feeling depressed or anxious. And it makes sense because you're developing an insecure attachment. When people are hot and cold, when they love you, then they hate you. When they're grateful and then you're the reason their life is so bad, you develop this insecure attachment and you develop this feeling that you can't trust yourself and you don't feel safe in the world. So it makes sense that you would feel anxiety and depression. Another hint that you might be dealing with a vulnerable narcissist is they assume the worst in others. Because of the deep insecurity inside of themselves and the way they judge others for self-protection and a sense of superiority, they often project those feelings onto others. They may believe that others are judging them harshly, treating them poorly, or ignoring them on purpose. Again, these people read body language, facial expressions. They are looking at everything through the lens of how are people trying to screw me over? How are people angry at me? How are they leaving me out? How are they judging me? How am I being abandoned? They're always on high alert looking for how other people might be wronging them. And because they believe these things about others, they often create a self-fulfilling prophecy in which they come off as hostile or passive-aggressive to others, which in turn keeps people away affirming their fear that other people hate them and are judging them and are ready to abandon them. So you may see this pattern in your own relationship with them. They may be incredibly sensitive to words you say, words you don't say, facial expressions you make. If you're late, if you don't text back within a certain time period or call back in a certain time period, if you don't bend over backwards or go above and beyond, they feel like you are abandoning them or judging them or hating on them in some way. And they feel personally victimized by these things. They're jealous of other people's successes They may make you feel guilty about your accomplishments or the time you spend on those accomplishments because if you are out doing things you love and being successful, you are spending less time taking care of them and paying attention to them. And remember, underlying all narcissism, it is all about them. 
and they have been so victimized by life. Like, how dare you go and do anything that you love when they need so much caretaking and you need to be here to care for their physical and emotional needs. You might find yourself starting to underplay your excitement about your success or even devalue yourself. So I dated someone in college that had some vulnerable narcissistic traits. And it wasn't long into our relationship that I noticed this person felt very threatened by my successes in school, by my talents, and by my hobbies. And I started undervaluing or devaluing these parts of myself. I either kept them hidden and I didn't talk about them, or I just would say, oh, but that's not very impressive, or that's not very important. And this really begins to create a pattern where you learn to speak negatively about yourself to offset your success, which over time will lower your self-esteem and lead to a sense of anxiety or depression of your own. It makes sense. If you've developed patterns of anxiety or depression, if you've lived with a vulnerable narcissist or if you're surrounded by friends who have these traits, it makes sense that you would begin to undervalue yourself and speak negatively about yourself in order to offset success so that other people don't feel threatened by you. And the other crazy thing that happens is as you do this over time, sometimes you can develop this kind of feeling of victimization or martyrdom, resentment, low-simmering rage. You can develop these things yourself. You can develop some of these vulnerable narcissistic traits as a passive-aggressive way to get your needs met because all of us can go invisible only for so long. We all have emotional needs. We all need to know that we're worthy and lovable, that we're enough. And if we can't feel that about ourselves, if it's not safe for us to value ourselves, then we will go about that in other more unhealthy ways. And then, of course, we've already talked about the passive aggression If you're a vulnerable narcissist, you don't just ask for what you need. You hint at what you need, and then you get angry when people don't meet your needs the way that you would like them to be met. So you go about getting your needs met in a very roundabout, underhanded, guilt-trippy way, and you're very emotionally fragile. There's a lot of shame and guilt and self-worth issues inside And any sense that we are deficient in any way or that we've caused any harm causes a vulnerable narcissist to crumble or to lash out in rage, one of the two. Now, vulnerable narcissists often either have a victim complex or a martyr complex or some combination of both. And We're going to talk first about the victim complex because some people will have vulnerable narcissism and will present more as a victim, and other people will present more as a martyr. 
And there is a difference between victim complex and martyr complex. And we're going to talk about those two. Victim complex is when the person feels victimized by their life circumstances. They feel like their life is out of their control. And they tend to be paranoid that others in the world, or maybe even God, has been out to get them or make them suffer. So they feel like people are actively trying to destroy their life or keep them down. They feel like bad things happen to them unfairly and that they're helpless to help their situation. And they have this kind of yes, but attitude. So if you offer suggestions or even assistance to help them out of their current situation, they will have a problem for every solution. So if you tell them or brainstorm with them ways that they can improve their situation, or if you give them the leg up they need, let's say you get them a job so that they can pay for their apartment, they might accept it gratefully in the moment or not. They might tell you immediately that it's deficient or why it won't work, but sometimes they'll accept it gratefully, but then the boss is a problem or people are prejudiced against them or um, the pay isn't sufficient because of the taxes being taken out. There's always a problem for every solution. So they don't look for solutions to their problems. They look for problems to their solutions. And they will often feel personally victimized by anything that goes wrong. Even when the problem wasn't directed at them or it's like some freak thing that happens in nature. So for instance, like rain on a wedding day. Yes, I'm like singing Alanis Morissette in my head. Like that's just what came to mind. Um, But like a train breaking down or a delay in the schedule. So if something happens, if there's a calamity, a fire alarm at work or anything, they will feel personally victimized by it. Like that thing is out to get them. Like it was God sending his own personalized F you to them. And they will and they will take it as a personal assault on their life, on their time, on their freedom, on their wedding day, on their happiness. And they often take those things out on everyone around them. Now, Anne Matthews has actually written an entire book on victim complex. And she said that victims develop the set of beliefs as a way to protect themselves, which we know. The person learns that hopes can be smashed and a person can be devastated by such dashing. So why not just avoid the whole mess altogether by being a perpetual victim, she says. She goes on to say that they may have had caregivers that only gave them attention when they were aggrieved. So if they were actively hurting, their caregivers would pay them attention but maybe neglect them the rest of the time. Or if they had caregivers that met their own needs for attention through self-victimization. So the more you had a parent or caregiver that had this sort of victim complex, the more you can learn it from them as a way to meet your own needs. Or that you had a parent that was maybe absent or neglectful unless you were hurting. And if you were hurting, then they would pay attention to you. Because people develop victim mentality as a coping mechanism, they're often unwilling to part with it. So the underlying belief there is, you know, if I'm a victim, I get taken care of and I'm safe. If my life isn't hard, no one's going to help me. I will be supportless is basically the thinking there. 
Another interesting thing about victim mindset, vulnerable narcissists, is that they will either blame others for their actions or justify their actions because they believe they are the persecuted and vulnerable ones. They've got like a persecution complex, which if you were raised in a high demand religion, my guess is you were taught to have a persecution complex yourself. You know what that's like to believe that the whole world is out to get you because you're the true church and Satan's influencing them. I think I'm going to do an episode on narcissism as a group. I've been learning a lot about group narcissism because of some things going on in the LDS church right now. Um, A huge sex scandal, like sex cover-up scandal was printed by Mike Resendez in the Associated Press. And it was a big story. And the LDS Church has given not one, but two press releases. And both press releases have been like textbook narcissistic answers to cover their reputation. There's been no accountability, no apology. I have been like eyeballs deep reading everything I can about group narcissism because of the way the LDS church is dealing with this particular issue right now. But persecution complex has come up over and over again as I've been studying. So be looking for that. I will be putting that out here in the next couple of weeks because I think it's relevant right now. But if you were raised in a group that told you that the world is out to get you because you're a member of a church and the, or that Satan and his angels are out to get you because you're a member of the church, you might look at the world through a different lens and believe that you are the persecuted and the vulnerable. Or you could at least understand how someone might get that, that thinking that they're the persecuted and the vulnerable and that the world is bullying them and out to get them. And then In their head, the way this gets twisted is if they are the perpetually victimized, how could they possibly be responsible for harming others? So they don't see the and there. Like, I can be traumatized and also traumatizing someone else. I can be harmed and also perpetuating that harm on someone else. Like, just because I have experienced harm doesn't mean I'm not capable of harming someone else. So... Their narcissism, the inability to empathize with other people or to be compassionate with other people comes from this idea of my wound is bigger. I am the perpetually victimized here. I'm the victim. And so therefore you can't be the victim and I can't be the perpetrator. And I think that's something that we see with a lot of churches is this idea of we are persecuted because we're Christian or because we're Mormon or because we're Jehovah's Witnesses or because we're Muslim or because, you know, we're Jewish. We are victimized. And so therefore, we can't possibly be victimizing anyone else because we're the victims. We're the ones who are persecuted. So it leads to a lack of empathy and a lack of accountability. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to look at how this shows up with parents because that's where I feel like I can most clearly see vulnerable narcissism showing up with religious parents. 
If you have parents that are vulnerable narcissists, everything still ends up being all about them, but they'll never outright say they feel like they deserve special privileges. So again, with the passive aggression, they'll hint at what they need. And if you don't give them what they need or what they want, they'll subconsciously make everything difficult or even like impossible for everyone else until they get their way. So they're going to play the victim card to cause everyone around them to fall in line because of the guilt they feel. And this can look lots of different ways, but here are a couple of examples. Like the parent who is sick or disabled that won't let you separate, even to like move down the street or to get married, let alone let you chase your own life or your own dreams because you need to stay home and take care of the parent. I recently, this past week, watched a movie... Um, with Sally Fields called Hello, My Name is Doris, which she's adorable in that movie, like such a great movie. There's one scene in Hello, My Name is Doris where she's sitting across the counter from this young guy that she is interested in romantically. And she tells him, and she's in her probably 60s, late 60s, maybe early 70s. And she tells him that she was engaged head over heels in love with this guy when she was in her 20s and that he got a job in Arizona and she had to break it off because she couldn't leave her mom because her mom needed someone to take care of her and her mom expected her to stay and take care of her and so she wasn't allowed to get married. She wasn't allowed to follow her fiance across the country. She wasn't allowed to have a life of her own because the expectation was for her to care for her mother. This might also look like a parent who needs to have all holidays at home because they can't travel. So you have to do all the traveling, all the calling, all the schedule bending to accommodate their needs. And, you know, if this happens one time because they had a surgery or something like that, that's fine. Like, that's normal. Sometimes we have to accommodate people's needs. But if this is the pattern, that you have to make all of the effort. You have to be the one that calls. I have a family member that when I call, every single time, I have to be the one that calls. Their phone obviously works because they're picking up on the other end. But whether I call every couple of weeks or every couple of months or as I've created better boundaries when I actually want to call, not when I'm feeling guilty. Every single time I call, I get a guilt trip about how I don't call more. And I've actually gotten a lot bolder about saying, you're right, I haven't called more. I have a lot going on in my life. But you know, your phone works the other way too. You can dial the numbers. And this person in my life that has a lot of vulnerable narcissistic traits will have a problem for every solution. They'll say, oh, I can't see the numbers very well, or I never learned how to text, or I, you know, can't because I'm tired all the time. Like they'll have an excuse for the reasons that they can't reach back. I'm too sick. I am too old. I'm too tired. Whatever. You might have a family member like this as well that will guilt you or be passive aggressive, like make snide remarks about how 
you're too busy for this person now or you've forgotten all about them and they'll use kind of a poor me voice of nobody cares about me anymore because now you have more exciting shiny things to do or it's it's awful to be at my position in life because everyone forgets about you. They might not even direct it directly to you. They might just in general be like, just wait until you're my age and then everyone will forget about you. So there's a lot of guilt and passive aggression. And when you offer ways to make it a win-win for everyone involved, ways that they could get a hold of you even when you're not available, you know, you might introduce them to Marco Polo, or you can send me messages on Facebook, or you could send me messages on Instagram, places where they already are. This person is already on Facebook and sends me messages, like sends me memes. So even letting them know, like, I'd be, I would be more than happy to teach you how to use the microphone so that you can send me voice messages. We can voice message back and forth when I'm not able to call. There's always a reason it won't work or they're too weak or too old or too tired or too sick to be able to do that. But they're always able to answer their phone and talk whenever I call. This might also look like expecting you to do something that they're unwilling to do back. So like expecting birthday cards or birthday wishes or... um you know, special treatment on certain days or remembering their favorite things, but they don't return any of that consideration for you. And then another way this might look is the in-law that's constantly making cutting or even passive aggressive remarks at you, but then cries to your spouse that you're the only one in the family that doesn't like them. So they like bully you on the down low, either passive aggressively or just like straight to your face. But then go to their child, your spouse, and basically make you look bad. Like, they're the only person that doesn't like me. I don't understand. Like, everybody else is so nice and they love me, but that person doesn't. So trying to kind of drive a wedge between you and the person they've gotten their supply from historically so that they can get more of that person's attention. Now, the crazy thing about vulnerable narcissistic parents who have this victim mentality is when they're talking with their friends about you, they might dwell on everything that's wrong in your life, the ways you failed them, or they might even downplay your life and achievements. And this is especially confusing if you have a very happy, successful life by your standards, to hear them just dwell on your failings, the things that aren't going well, um, your little disappointments, or downplaying your success. Because what's going on here is they value the sympathy that this failure garners. That feels better to them than evoking the affirmations or even the envy in others that they would get if you were successful. So while a grandiose narcissistic parent is going to brag about how amazing you are because that makes them look like a good parent and shows like they passed on successful genes to you, a vulnerable narcissistic parent will talk about how awful you are or how sad your life is or how, you know, you didn't quite get what you needed or 
if heaven forbid you decide to become an artist instead of a doctor, like how little you make and how disappointing your life is because it garners them sympathy and pity and their supply, the flavor of supply they crave is sympathy and pity. They don't want envy. They don't want affirmation. They want sympathy and pity. So if you're dealing with a person that seems to thrive off of sucking the pity and the sympathy from other people, you might be dealing with a vulnerable narcissist that has victim mentality. The reason they like this is because it makes other people protective of them. If other people feel like their life is a failure, things aren't going well, life is stacked against them, people feel very protective of that and they want to help and they want to, you know, caretake. And when they feel like they're surrounded by caretakers that will be responsible for their life, that feels safer than having others believe they're capable and responsible adults. Being left on their own to be a responsible adult, being responsible for their life feels really, really scary. And so they play the victim so that people will caretake them like they're a child. And a common phrase you might hear yourself utter if you're in a relationship with a vulnerable narcissist is, it's never enough no matter how hard I try. You are damned if you do and you are damned if you don't. It really feels like you can't make the right decision. You can't help enough. Like even if you bled yourself dry and died, it still would not be enough. The emotional vampire would suck all of the empathy out of your body, leave you on the ground withering and dying, and they would still be starving for empathy. And if you set your boundaries with a vulnerable victim complex narcissist, they will portray you as a bully and themselves as the victim. They will literally portray you as just being this mean, ungrateful person for no reason at all. Or they're going to portray the distance that you create as everyone just forgetting about them. So it is always, poor me, nobody loves me. The song that comes to mind was actually taught to me by this person in my life that I loved and adored as a small child. Like, I have nothing but bright, sunshiny, happy moments, for the most part. The more I'm getting to know and the more I'm revisiting my childhood memories, the more I'm like, oh, oh, no, this was always present. It's not like it just started when I became a teenager. Like, I can see the red flags when I was a tiny child, but, like, the song was, Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm gonna eat some worms. Do you guys know the song? Long, thin, slimy ones, short, fat, juicy ones, itsy bitsy, fuzzy wuzzy worms. That's what it feels like. Like, that's the energy you get around a vulnerable narcissist with victim mentality is nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. The whole world is stacked against me. And no matter how much time, energy, money, help you pour into the relationship, it never, ever feels like it's enough. All right. Now I want to talk about the martyr complex. So we just talked about the vulnerable narcissist that has the victim complex. But now let's talk about the martyr complex. And this is really when vulnerable narcissism meets communal narcissism. 
It's an exaggerated sense of obligation to sacrifice and suffer for others. This is especially true if they're sacrificing and suffering for their children or a congregation. And the reason they do it is to seek sympathy, admiration, and support. Now, this person isn't the saint. The saint that we talked about last week is still confident. They can make things happen. They can network. They understand how to, you know, be charismatic with people and motivate them to come to the gala and donate to the charity. And they move mountains to make amazing things happen. But the martyr... This is the person that's slowly dying on the altar of their cause. So while the communal narcissist that has more grandiose tendencies is going to show up for all the photo ops, this is the person that refuses to do anything for themselves. They still want validation. They will talk all the time about how they have nothing because they give everything to the cause. The best example I could come up with for the martyr, honestly, in religion was motherhood. You'll hear things like, I live for my kids. And this is like the mother that does everything for her kids at the expense of her own hopes and dreams in order for her kids to have theirs. And this is often modeled in our society and especially in religion as the ideal way to mother. But it is actually harmful both to the mother and to the kids. Children with martyr mothers are actually burdened with guilt and responsibility from an early age. They are very much aware that they are the reason for their mother's suffering and sacrifices. This stifles their ability to feel like they can make their own choices, have different beliefs, or disappoint their parents in any way. Because their parents have sacrificed so much for them, so they owe those parents. And we talked a little bit about that last week. It can sometimes lead to a failure to launch as well when children believe that if they become mature, independent adults, they'll leave their mothers with nothing to live for. So sometimes children will stay infantilized or irresponsible. They might become drug addicts or alcoholics so that their mothers continue to have somebody to caretake, somebody to live for. If my child needs me because they cannot launch and become mature themselves, then I'm there for them. Like if they can't hold a job or if they can't financially take care of themselves, if they're fiscally irresponsible, if they can't seem to stay married, if they are perpetually depressed, if they are perpetually hospitalized, or if they have some sort of like illness or eating disorder... If the children have something that needs caretaking, it gives mom something to live for. And so sometimes we don't launch. We don't ever fully grow up. We don't ever become mature, responsible adults. Because if we did, then it takes away our parents' sense of purpose. And we feel like we owe them that because they've sacrificed so much for us. And we do this often subconsciously, not consciously. I don't think anyone's like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to mess up my life really badly because my mom needs an identity. I don't think any of us do that. But I do think subconsciously sometimes that's going on underneath the surface. 
A narcissistic martyr will demand to be the center of attention in the family, requiring a constant stream of love, reassurance, and admiration from their kids. However, even if the child gives the constant love and admiration to their parents, it's never quite enough to satisfy the parents' enormous emotional needs. And this kind of mirrors the victim mentality. They're very closely related, but where the victim just feels passive, like everything's happening to them, the martyr actively seeks to go above and beyond. They will actively seek more responsibility than what is asked of them. They'll do things you didn't ask them to do for you and then accuse you of being ungrateful and expect you to reciprocate for their efforts. So they might pay for something that you didn't ask them to pay for or watch your kids or like do some sort of chore for you or buy you a house or or get you accepted at a university that you didn't even want to go to. And then they will expect you to reciprocate by being super grateful and then doing whatever they want you to do because they went above and beyond for you even though you didn't want them to. This is also going to be the parent that's unwilling or unable to accept or delegate help believing they are the only one who can do it right. The truth is the martyr doesn't want help. They want the credit for doing all the hard work. They want people to see how much they're suffering and bleeding for whatever it is that they're doing. They want the excuse to talk about how tired they are and how much their hands hurt and how much their back hurts and how little they have in the bank account and how nobody helps them so that others will fawn over them, sympathize with them, and tell them how amazing they are for sacrificing so much. And just like the victim mindset, even after fawning over them, thanking them, they still believe you're indebted to them. It is still not enough. They are going to cash in that IOU later on. I did all of this without your help. You were a lazy slug over there. Even if you didn't want to be a lazy slug. Even if you offered and offered and offered to help and actually would have felt better helping. They want you to be the lazy slug. They want you to take on that persona so that they can be the hero. They can be the martyr. They can be the the person that is doing all the work so that everyone will see how unfair life is to them because all they do is sacrifice. There's never any time or energy left for them. They don't even have any money left for them because they're always providing for you, the lazy slug. Now, they do all of these things for others with the expectation of receiving a reward or an IOU from those people. All of the strings are attached when a vulnerable martyr does something for you. The more the martyr does for you, the more they expect you to act like their puppet. Because they bend over backwards to do so much for you, they expect you to agree with and obey everything they say. After all, it's the least you can do, they say, for all of their sacrifices. If you contradict this person at any time, they will show you the full bill of everything they do for you and how much you owe to them. They will go back decades and enumerate every single thing that they've done for you and how much you owe them as a way to like catch you and guilt you into doing things their way. When you try to set boundaries with a vulnerable martyr complex narcissist, so where a victim mentality 
vulnerable narcissist will be like, oh, you're such a bully. You're being so mean to me. Life is so unfair. The martyr will say, you owe me. Look how much I've done for you. I don't even get a life. I don't even get to take care of myself because I spent all the time helping you, you lazy slug. And then they'll tell you to do what they want you to do. Now, the antidote to vulnerable narcissism is radical responsibility. And that is super hard to hear whenever you have vulnerable narcissistic traits or when you've been in a codependent relationship with a vulnerable narcissist. Because radical responsibility is realizing that while we had very little control over how things went down in our childhood, we are now adults who are in control of where our lives go from here. And vulnerable narcissism at its root is all about control. The vulnerable narcissist felt like they had no control as a child. And so they felt helpless. They felt like they weren't allowed to express their needs. They weren't allowed to have needs. And so they go about very passive-aggressive, victimized ways of getting their needs met. And if you're in a relationship with a vulnerable narcissist, you likely feel handcuffed to them. The guilt can be intense, especially if the vulnerable narcissist in your life has developed a disability, a mental health issue, or a physical health issue, or hypochondria as a way to like manipulate the situation and to guilt you into doing what they want you to do on their timetable. And we can feel like we don't have control in our lives and that we are at their mercy. We can feel like we don't have choices. And so radical responsibility is the antidote to both the narcissism and the codependency with the vulnerable narcissist. Many of us either become codependent with vulnerable narcissism or exhibit vulnerable narcissism because we believe we're helpless to our circumstances. We believe we're at the mercy of other people and we have little, if any, control over creating a better life for ourselves. So we can hold people accountable for what happened in our childhood at the same time that we take accountability for our healing and the course of our life now. So radical responsibility is not about taking all of the blame on yourself. You can still hold people accountable for the harm they caused in your life and the way that influenced your life while taking full responsibility for the now. I can fully understand that certain people shaped me and that things that I do now makes so much sense when put into the context of my relationships as a child. And understand that even if those people don't ever change, don't ever apologize, are never accountable, I am fully responsible for my life now. I can set boundaries with those people. If I need to set very hard boundaries, I can set very hard boundaries. I can make choices in my life that get me closer to things that bring me happiness and success. I can choose to stop doing behaviors 
that pull me away from happiness and success. I have a lot of flexibility here. If something isn't working, I can problem solve and I can continue to try on solutions until I find something that works for my life. It takes hard work. It takes a lot of healing. It takes time. But I'm in control of my life now as an adult. I might not have been as a child, but I am now. So I can still hold people accountable for their harm while taking responsibility for my life now. So... One of the things we can do to take radical responsibility is to get still. Many of us in codependent relationships stay really, really busy so that we can't hear what our inner voice is saying. Just finding time to sit quietly will allow us to hear what is not working for us so that we can get curious about the ways we have control over that part of our life. Just even hearing this isn't working this isn't what I want, is a huge step forward towards being able to brainstorm what we would like better so that we can find solutions for that. If thoughts like, this is just how it is, it's impossible to change this, or there is no solution come up for you, acknowledge that that part of you is trying to keep you safe. Give it gratitude This is likely a younger part of you. If you want, go back to the parts work we did a few months ago. This is a part of you trying to keep you safe. It's saying, look, in the past, when we were kids, you tried to speak up. You tried to make changes. And remember, that didn't go very well. Eh, I'm kind of thinking maybe we shouldn't make some changes. Like, we're not dead. So maybe we just deal with this kind of annoying hand that we have. You can tell that part of yourself, I appreciate you. Thank you for trying to keep me out of pain, but I need you to step aside for the moment just so I can see if anything comes to mind that would give us more power in our life. I hear you, but I'm grown up now. I can protect myself now. I need you to step aside for a minute so we can brainstorm and find a solution that's better for us now. The second thing is to heal yourself. Many of us become codependent with vulnerable narcissists or exhibit these narcissistic traits ourselves because we needed validation, love, and acceptance as children. Learning to give ourselves space to hear our emotions, listen to our needs, and learning to forgive and love ourselves can help to heal so many of these wounds. Become the parent to your inner child that you wished you had. You didn't have control over how you were parented as a child, but you are capable of reparenting yourself now and giving yourself the love and care that you need. Giving yourself the ability to feel self-worth, to feel self-love, fills in those gaps, those holes that create these protective patterns in the first place. We have less need for narcissistic traits when we feel whole inside of ourselves. We feel less need to be codependent with narcissists and people with other abusive disorders when we feel whole inside of ourselves. 
all of these protective patterns are meant to protect a self-worth wound, an attachment wound. When we feel whole, we don't need to engage in unhealthy patterns to meet our self-worth needs and our attachment needs. Number three, drop expectations. Sometimes we hang on to our codependent relationships hoping that others will wake up and realize they need to change to meet our needs. Sometimes we hang on to these expectations because it's easier to be like, you do your work instead of us do our work. Part of healing is going to be accepting who people have shown you that they are and what they're capable of giving to your relationship. Once you've gotten clear about who people are and what they can give, then decide what your relationship should look like based on that information. Sometimes we try to create a relationship based on who we think people should be. Instead, figure out who people actually are and what their capacity actually is, and then base your relationship on that information. And it could change in the future, right? As they grow and heal. But right now, they've shown you who they are. Are they a person that you can open up and be completely vulnerable with? Are they going to be your deep confidant? Or are they a person you're going to maintain more of a surface relationship with and keep them kind of at arm's length? Or are they a person you have to have harder boundaries with and maybe no contact with? You get to decide what a healthy relationship with the person they actually are looks like. And yes, a healthy relationship with somebody who is highly manipulative and controlling, especially if they're in that malignant or sociopathic place, might look like no contact. That might be what's healthiest for you. And that is okay. I know sometimes we keep pushing really hard, hoping our parent will transform and become the parent we should have had. But our parent has shown us who they are, at least for right now. And we then get to decide how to interact with that. Number four is act from a place of power. Remember that you almost always have a choice in every situation and relationship in your life, even with your parents. Often you have multiple choices. And I think today, if you find yourself in a relationship with a vulnerable narcissist, if you find yourself feeling like I either have to stay and do everything they want me to do, or I break off all contact, I want you to brainstorm as many choices as you can think of. Whenever you hear yourself only come up with two options, an either or option, push to see, can I find a third option, a fourth option? How many options can I get on the paper, no matter how ridiculous they sound? In fact, I like to start with the most ridiculous ideas I can think of because it opens up my creative brain. I mean, we're talking things like, You know, maybe aliens would abduct me and I get to go live on a different planet. Like things that are like way out there, right? Like not even possible, like sci-fi in nature. I will come up 
with some of the craziest things I can think of and put them on the paper to almost signal to my brain, there are no options off the table. Give me everything you've got. And my subconscious brain starts sifting through the files of my brain, of everything I've seen, heard, all the information I've taken in from textbooks and research and other people's lives and hearing other people's stories. And it will start pulling up files like, what about this? And what about this? And I sit there and I just put all of those things onto the paper just to show myself I have choices. And then I start sifting through what would I actually want to do? And as I get closer to that, I'll even tweak what came up to be like, okay, so I might be able to do a little of this one and a little of this one. Let's put those together and create like a custom solution for myself. And just brainstorm until you find a solution that's acceptable to you. Then this is the important part. Act on that choice. Like implement it. See what happens. And then check in to see if that choice works or if there's things to tweak to make it work better. And then if you need to, do the brainstorming process again. Figure out what needs to be fixed. Implement that. And then repeat the process. That's my challenge to you this week. Take radical responsibility. Realize that, yeah, things in our past may have sucked. You may have times like I've had this past week where I've had to sit and hold my inner child and allow them to just cry about realizations that they've had, ways that they were emotionally abused that they didn't understand were emotional abuse at the time. I didn't even understand were emotional abuse until this past week. I had to sit with them. I had to let them be angry. I had to let them be sad. And I had to let them feel betrayed. And I had to listen and hold space for that and comfort them and let them know that their feelings were valid. I had to cry. I had to angry write a little bit. I had to let myself process. And then I had to take accountability for who I am today. I'm the adult. That person has very little influence in my life anymore. And that makes me sad because I love that person. But it's not healthy for me to spend a lot of time around that person right now. Because who they are right now and what they're capable of right now means that we don't get to interact very often. Because it's not healthy for me. So... You might have people like that in your life. You might have times where your inner child needs to grieve. And that is okay. We can still hold people accountable for what happened while taking radical responsibility today and realizing we have the control in our lives and we have tons of options to create a life that feels good for us. Not a life that somebody else says we should live. Not a life based on the guilt and passive aggressive remarks of somebody who's just trying to fill their own self-worth by making us feel guilty to take care of them. We get to decide what works for us and create a healthy life for ourselves. 
And by so doing, we invite everyone in our life, including the vulnerable narcissist, to take radical responsibility for themselves and to heal themselves. Every time we choose healing for our own lives, every time we choose to work through trauma, to work through harm, to work through our wounds, and we get to a place where we heal that self-worth wound, we invite every person in our life to do the same for themselves. And it's beautiful. It's painful, don't get me wrong, but it's beautiful. I would love to hear your stories on the Emancipate Yourself group. Just feel free to create your own post. Tell me what it's been like for you on your healing journey. Tell me what you're learning. Tell me what's sticking out to you in these podcasts. Tell me what you would love to hear in future podcasts. I want to hear from you. Please go start a discussion thread. You can talk about anything that is coming up for you right now. Tell me what's bubbling up to the surface for you. What's making an impact? What do you want to talk about? Go to the Emancipate Yourself group on Facebook. Write your post. I look forward to hearing what's in your head, what's coming up for you, how you're healing, even how you're holding yourself radically responsible for your life, whatever you feel like talking about, whatever you would like to hear podcasts about in the future, please go drop those things over in the Facebook group. And I'll be there to interact with you throughout this upcoming week. And I can't wait to talk with you again in the podcast next week. I'll see you next Sunday.